This is Fintech Takes, the podcast keeping you in the loop on all the latest fintech trends, news, and ideas. I'm Alex Johnson, creator of the Fintech Takes newsletter, your host, and self-confessed fintech nerd. Let's go. Hello. Welcome back to the Fintech Takes podcast. My name is Alex Johnson. I am the creator of Fintech Takes, and I am delighted to bring a uh, new recurring show underneath the Fintech Takes umbrella that we're going to be doing on a recurring basis that I'm calling Bank Nerd Corner. And the reason I'm calling it that is that... um, I really wanted an excuse uh, every month or so to just sort of dive into the world of banking and kind of pick out the nerdiest sort of least discussed topics and try to pull them apart and understand what they mean. I think a challenge that we have in fintech is that we're so focused on product and innovation and tech and shipping new code that we sometimes don't pay enough attention to the financial services side of fintech. And in particular, banks, which sit obviously at the end of everything that we do in fintech, whether we like it or not. So the purpose of this show is to sort of tease out all the different interesting things that are happening in banking. And I would not be able to do it if not joined by my partner in crime for this endeavor, one of my favorite people in banking and fintech, the managing editor of Bank Director, Kia Hazlitt. Kia, thanks for joining me. Hi, Alex. Happy Lunar New Year. Happy Lunar New Year to you as well. Happy Year of the Rabbit. I am actually a rabbit by birth. And so um, this is like my years. Oh my goodness. Your power year. Yes. I'm very, very excited. Yes. I hope you come into your power this year. (laughs) Thank you. It hasn't happened yet, but I feel like this might be the year that it actually happens. The year just started, Alex. You've got 51 quality weeks. That's right. Exactly. I actually do like the um, New Year, calendar New Year starting and then the Lunar New Year starting like a month, a month and a half after, because now I get a chance to be like, well, those habits I said I was going to form that I kind of fell down on for like three or four weeks, those don't count. That was like a practice run. And now we're hitting the ground running. So um, happy Lunar New Year to you as well. Kia and I are going to um, dive through a bunch of different topics today. And the way we're going to approach this is basically breaking this episode into three different segments. So first, we're going to talk through some of the just sort of news and headlines from the banking industry over the last month, month and a half or so, just the things that kind of caught our eye that we think are interesting. We'll bounce those around for a bit. And then we're going to spend a little bit of time at the end getting into a little bit of bank history and kind of nerding out on some sort of niche topics that are interesting, maybe just to Kia and I, but hopefully to others as well. And then we're going to end by trying to ask a question that there's no way we'll be able to answer, which is another thing that I think Kia and I share and have in common is a desire to sort of ask interesting questions, even if we know that the answer is going to be impossible. So we'll try to to pose a good one of those at the end. But um, Kia, you ready to get started? Yeah, let's dive in. Okay, so starting with some news, the first thing I wanted to talk about was tales from bank earnings in Q4 of 2022. So um, at the time of this recording, we're coming off of most of the larger banks doing their reporting for their Q4 earnings from last year, which I think is a particularly good time to sort of check in because it does sort of give a wrap up on everything that happened in 2022. And I've noticed that these earnings tend to be a little bit more geared as well towards like a view into what's going to happen over the entire course of 2023, not just Q1, which we're in today, but the rest of the year as well. So I wrote a newsletter about this, actually, and going through the big four national banks, quite a few of the large regional banks as well, and kind of scanning through their earnings reports, there were a couple of themes that jumped out to me. So Kia, I'm going to walk through a few of these, and I'd love for you to react to them and tell me what you think. Tell me what I maybe got wrong in my initial analysis that I wrote in my newsletter. No, please. I read that newsletter, and I was happy to see another large bank analyst joining the ranks. And I'd love to get (laughs) this to be your new quarterly um, newsletter. If you guys like that newsletter, tell Alex to keep reading it for us or reading those transcripts for us. I'll do my best. I uh, I will admit to having burned out at some point where it's like, I just can't, I can't add another one to the list. I think I, there's so many banks, the calls are so long. I know. I, I, and the earnings reports are just, I mean, they're tough because, you know, they write them in a certain way that's a little, little hard to parse, but you get the hang of it. So um, in parsing the results, a couple things jumped out. First is that Q4 of 2022, and really, I think most of 2022, was really a good time for net interest income. So um, 
For those of you who don't study this stuff obsessively, net interest income is essentially the disparity between the money that banks make in interest by lending out money and then the money that they pay to depositors in interest to, to keep their deposits. And as I wrote about in my newsletter, you know, whenever we're in a, a quickly rising rate environment, and obviously it's been a little while since we've been in one of those, banks' net interest incomes tend to expand during that time because the lag between the rising of interest rates for loans, which tend to shoot right up, and we've seen that in mortgage lending, we've seen it in auto lending, we've seen it in credit card, we've seen it in unsecured personal, pretty much everywhere, commercial lending, uh, tends to get far out ahead of deposit interest rates going up. And again, probably some of you in the audience can empathize with, you know, the consumer who still has a large amount of cash parked with their existing bank, but they're still being paid 0.3%, 0.5%. A lot of those interest rates have been held down. Yeah, 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 exactly. Like it's pretty pathetic actually for a lot of deposit consumers, but there tends to be a bit of a lag before consumers realize and businesses realize, hey, I should be getting more on my deposits. That's when banks eat, right? And that was the number one thing that came out across all of the earnings reports I looked at was that net interest incomes were up. Now, it was also noted in a lot of these earnings reports that there is an expectation that that net interest income is going to level off or start to drop as we get through 2023. I think the general consensus is that the next couple quarters will be still fairly strong from a net interest income perspective. But after that, it's going to start to go down. And again, that will largely be based on consumers and businesses kind of waking up and starting to demand more deposits and sort of moving their deposits from institutions that don't provide that, which banks tend to think of as like runoff from their deposit base. And, um, you know, the way that banks sort of talk about that in the earnings reports is deposit beta, which is essentially the ratio of interest that banks are earning that they then pass on from the Fed rate as it goes up to consumers. And you want to have a low deposit beta rate, which most banks do today. They expect that that rate's going to go up as they have to pay more to hold on to their deposits. So net interest income starting to level off is going to be one theme. Another theme that I think is very connected, and Key, I'd like your sort of take on this one in particular, is the adding of loan loss reserves. So pretty much every bank that I I looked at at least said that they are setting more money aside for the possibility of losses in their lending portfolios for the coming quarter and really for the coming year. And what was interesting sort of parsing that was that they all have these sort of economic situations or forecasts sort of underlying those loss reserves that they're setting aside. And it was interesting to look at that because their sort of consensus view of the economy over the next year is that the unemployment rate in the U.S. is probably going to climb up to somewhere around four, four and a half percent? It's not going to go lower. I think we, I think it's a safe bet to think that the three percent unemployment rate is going to have to go higher, not lower. Right, exactly. So maybe a, a percentage point, maybe a point and a half. The worst case scenario that seemed to be contemplated by folks was like somewhere in the seven and a half to eight percent, which is pretty scary. And that was really what was sort of underlying the loss reserves that they were adding to their book. And it was interesting because they all basically said, look, we're not worried about the quality of our loans, right? Our delinquencies are so low. We feel good about the customers that we've been underwriting. However, we do want to take some precautions because of this potentially worsening economic scenario. So what did you take away from that, Kia? Well, so your commentary about the loan loss reserves and building up the allowances reflects that big banks since 2020 have been operating under the new credit loss standard called the Current Expected Credit Loss Model or CECL. And since the start of this quarter, Q1 2023, all banks and all companies, so not just banks, have to operate under the standard because the standard comes from the accounting subgroup of the SEC, um, the Financial Accounting Standards Board. So these are the accounting roles for the United States now. They're not just for banks. The current expected credit loss model requires all companies to set aside lifetime losses at the point of origination. So if you have a 30-year mortgage that you think you're going to have on your books for seven years, you have to set aside seven years of losses at origination. And then every quarter, revisit those assumptions for the losses uh, using a what they call the reasonable and supportable forecast, future forecast. And for most banks that have been doing CECL for now almost three years, 
that is one to two years. Now, I don't know if you remember what happened in the first quarter of 2020, COVID. So I thought the big story of Q1 2020 would be that CECL goes into effect for the first year. You have your day one fully, your adjustment, and then you have the quarterly build, build and build. And then we have COVID and we have a very severe economic forecast that probably most banks were not, even if they had envisioned a scenario this bad, they had not assigned the weighting as being like highly probable. And so we have a very rapid and aggressive reserve build. Now for the last, you know, since then, and with all of the measures that the government took to mitigate the economic impact of COVID and the the lockdowns, we never really saw these allowances be realized. There was some big allowance releasing, which kind of helped boost earnings for 2021. And that's really interesting, right? Because, sorry to interrupt, but on the on the re- releasing, I thought that was really interesting when I was reading the earnings because they talked a lot about like, okay, how much are you going to set aside? And you could hear some of the analysts almost ask the executives at these banks like, well, but how many of those reserves do you really think you're going to need? And then how many do you think you might release? Because if you do release them, then like, those can be put into stock buybacks or go into other things that are sort of beneficial. So that was interesting to me as well. Yeah. So I wrote like, I mean, it was amazing. I wrote an eight page article in Bank (laughs) Director about the first year of CECL because we got to basically test the model in like a black swan environment. And one thing that you're noticing it now in earnings is that the number one, historically, the number one predictor of bank loan losses is the unemployment rate, whether that's the national rate for, you know, these big banks or a local rate, a state rate, a county rate. But when banks built their loss models that had to incorporate lifetime losses using historical data, oftentimes going back to the financial crisis in 2009, there was a high correlation between unemployment and and loan losses. So now, as banks form their reasonable and supportable forecasts, they do a baseline, they do a moderate, they do a severe, and then they have to kind of weight what those for the probability of those forecasts. It, unemployment figures highly into those. If you, you know, I, now that you're a bank analyst, uh, I would encourage you to <laughs> An check the 10 analyst. <laughs> well, check the 10Ks. The 10Ks will always have more information about the economic forecast because banks actually, one thing that Cecil did was bank, banks got a little bit better at explaining their assumptions to, you know, members of the public to just say, well, we think this amount of losses are going to happen under these set of circumstances. If the circumstances change by, you know, if unemployment goes up 5% or 5 percentage points, we think losses will go up this amount. Um, the other thing that we Cecil makes you do is as you grow loans, you should be growing allowances. Before um, Cecil went into effect, there was a phenomenon where banks were, the industry was growing loans and allowances were declining. And that was reflective of that credit quality was really good, but I always that that never sat well with me as just someone who watched the financial crisis and some of the lagging that we saw with losses being you know saving for losses and then recognizing for losses. You know, there's always been a debate about the pro cyclicality of Cecil. I don't know if COVID was the best example, but you know, right now I think we can say you know some banks are building allowances. They are doing it in part because of loan growth. They are also doing it in part because they see some areas of economic weaknesses. And it will be interesting to see those changes quarterly if the allowances grow. And then it'll also be interesting to see if net charge-offs, the actual recognition of losses grows. And then to see whether ultimately allowances decline. Well, and, and I think to your point there, I mean, it is really interesting that like we we first got to test out Cecil in this Black Swan event, because I think even now sort of coming out of the sort of first phase of the pandemic, at least, I think that there's still a lot of sort of disagreement or uncertainty around exactly what the economy is going to do, right? I mean, they use the term mild recession a lot in these earnings reports, as we right? Everyone's contemplating a mild recession. Moody's is anticipating a mild recession. That's sort of the the consensus view and what they're planning for, which again is like unemployment getting up to four and a half, five percent nationally, something like that. What I think is interesting about that, though, is that, you know, and some of the, the bank executives talked about this. 
the recession might happen a little differently than it has in other cases, right? Like the unemployment rate might not get as high as you would think for some of the losses that banks may suffer, right? And it relates even to like the types of loan portfolios that these banks have, which then inform the weightings that they do and the way that they calculate their allowances. You know, some are very heavy on commercial office real estate, right? And that's like a, a category that they lend to. They've already had to write down a lot of the value of those portfolios, not really because the economy itself is suffering or unemployment has gone up a huge amount, but because COVID sort of changed the working environment and suddenly those loans don't look the same because everyone's working from home and there's a bunch of empty office space in downtown San Francisco. So there are some really sort of strange things about the economy. There's supply chain disruptions. There's um, you know still inflation taking a bite out of people's pockets books and ability to sort of meet all their obligations. So it is interesting to contemplate a world in which, you know, the actual delinquency rates and write-offs go up, even if the unemployment rate doesn't necessarily go up and the employment, you know, remains relatively hot. The other thing about that that's interesting is pretty much everyone in their scenarios that they mapped out for the year contemplated that by Q3 of um, this coming year, uh, Jerome Powell would knock it off with the interest rate uh, increases and that by Q4, the Fed would actually start to lower the interest rate a little bit. And I thought that was interesting. In the recent FOMC minutes, they said that they don't see any rate declines this year, whether or not rates stabilize. But I just like, are we playing chicken with Powell? Like, do we think Powell is reading? He's reading what you're saying. He can hear you. He totally can. Right. I mean, I very much got that vibe when I was reading the earnings reports was like, we dare you to raise the interest rates in or, or even to keep them steady in Q4. Right. And so like, I think I didn't include this line in my newsletter. I think I cut it. But I basically said, if you want to see a bunch of bankers freak out, watch what happens if Powell doesn't lower the interest rate in Q4. Right. Because they're all of their scenarios are basically based on that's going to slow down. That's going to have an impact on, you know, lending on net interest margins on our deposit base is like all of these things are going to be affected by this. That's what they're contemplating. But to your point, I don't necessarily think he's going to do that. I mean, maybe he does, maybe he doesn't, but that's not a sure thing by any means. And yet all of them were very consistent about, we think this is going to happen. So I thought that was fascinating. The other thing I wanted to point out is in your example about like how unemployment might be stable, but you could still have credit weakness across different sectors and even in different geographies. For your you know fintech listeners, a lot of this modeling is possible because of data analytics, data pools, data like the technologies that these fintechs, some of these vendors, some of these consultants have brought into banking to really drill down on loan level data, geographic data, borrower data, occupancy rates. And a lot of that work was kind of brought about because of Cecil. You know, it's never clear how much a bank wants to do in the data analysis and the loan level analysis. But for banks that wanted to get real nerdy with it, and really like maximize their cash flow. This is information that they've been able to add. And these are capabilities that they maybe you didn't even have in the last financial crisis. They maybe didn't have them in COVID, right? COVID really showed that there's different, like even in the hospitality space, different types of hotels were going to perform differently. And that, that was that delineation, the ability to figure out, okay, beach hotels and resorts probably going to be okay business hotels really close to a convention center, maybe not as okay. These types of office spaces, um, retail spaces, warehousing, the, all of these different commercial spaces are going to perform a little differently. And maybe putting them all in one big CRE bucket is not going to be useful for our bank when we're trying to assign thoughtful allowances. And when our regulator asks us, well, where did this number come from? Or our auditor asks us, Totally. Yeah. I mean, being able to have a really like precise answer to that, I think, is such an important sort of difference between the way that's being done today versus the way it used to be done. And I think you're right. I mean, on the margins, it allows you to manage these allowances more carefully, which can kind of help you sort of manage your overall earnings a little bit better. And that that was, again, something that was definitely discussed. And a lot of the analysts who were sort of grilling the bank executives in these earnings calls, they definitely wanted to like drill down into like, okay, what's exactly going into these assumptions? What's your model? How are you approaching doing that? So it was, was extremely interesting. Um, the other two things I want to just mention really quickly, uh, and then we'll get off this topic and on to another one, is my favorite part of reviewing all the earnings this time around was um, 
a note that was in the PNC earnings call. And uh, they were talking about operating losses for the quarter and some write-offs they had to make and some investments that they had made that just weren't working out and sort of these one-time losses that they were basically just writing down and getting off of their books. Yeah, and, it's the kitchen sink quarter is what it's called. In, that's like, right. Earnings. You take all your losses in the fourth quarter, start Q, Q1 fresh. Yeah, exactly. So so they were kind of like, well, what, what can we throw in the kitchen sink? Like, what do we have to get rid of? What, what do we not believe in anymore? And uh, the CFO was kind of walking through the numbers and the CFO said something to the effect of like, yeah, and, and there isn't really any like one thing here. It's just kind of a bunch of stuff kind of, you know, tossing it all out in the kitchen sink. It's not a big deal. And interestingly, PNC's CEO jumped in over top of the CFO at that point and said, well, actually, crypto is one. We're, we're writing off everything to do with crypto. And it was like, you could almost just, I didn't listen to the call. Obviously, I was reading the transcript, but even reading the transcript, I was like, ah, like that's um, that's a point he wants to make very explicit. And yeah, don't ask me any more questions. It's zero. Right. Like no more crypto. We're out of the business of being in crypto. And I, I went back and did a little research. And actually, over the last couple of years, PNC, I hadn't really noticed this, but they'd been very aggressive at a partnership with Coinbase about exploring sort of potential uses of blockchain, about enabling their customers to be able to invest in crypto. So they had a bunch of different irons in the fire. It wasn't even just one thing. It was a lot of different things. And they were hiring people to sort of lead this crypto initiative at PNC. So they were among, I think, the more aggressive mainstream banks at sort of starting to dip their toes or even their ankles in the waters of crypto. And I think this message delivered during this quarter was, we're not in that business anymore. Like we kind of got seduced by all the sort of numbers just going up and to the right, but we're not going to be in that business. That's not something we're going to focus on. And I thought that was an interesting sort of mainstream reflection of some of the other things that we've seen uh, over the last quarter or so in terms of banks getting a little bit burned by crypto. What have you seen in that area? Oh, man, this is such an interesting quarter. I mean, when you're a bank reporter, you're always, you know, when when bank earning season comes around, you just pray to the gods that there's going to be something interesting. And (laughs) the bank treatment of crypto and the disclosures around these investments, so not even assets, right? These are not... Like PNC wasn't holding down Bitcoin and then had to write down the value of that asset. Right. They are marking down an investment. You know, I don't know if it signals that these banks are done with crypto. You know, Metropolitan Bank, we also saw that they are formally exiting the business line. Um, So that is a declaration that, you know, (laughs) that experiment is over. Silvergate has attracted a lot of attention this quarter. Silvergate was very well known as having like hitched its wagon to cryptocurrency and, and really tailored a lot of the bank around servicing this industry, including, and I think to their credit, recognizing, it, you know, if you're going to bank crypto, what does that mean for your liquidity position, how you're going to make money? And so crypto and the rapid deposit runoff of the crypto space or the the cash out. I don't know if we call it a deposit runoff, but the cash <laughs> out. Right. Some of the um, companies shutting down have these like tag along effects for banks. And so, you know, um, Silvergate basically had a good old fashioned bank run, um, <laughs> a deposit run. Yeah. And then we also saw um, some of the very clearly, this is something that they have modeled for it. They had liquidity positions, um, a liquidity facilities ready to go. They also had they are one of the few banks that has had to take um, to sell some of their securities at a loss in order to raise money. That is, um, you know, banks have these bond books. Many of them have unrecognized losses that have dragged down their um, tangible common equity. They have, you know, Silvergate's one of the few banks that had to realize that. But it really shows, I think, um, basically, like how important liquidity is for banks. When you talk about deposit betas and cost of funds, you know, that's all well and good to grow loans. But one of the reasons why it's coming up is because, you know, if you walk into a community bank and, you know, I'm a, say I have a business and I have a million dollars in deposits and I'm like, I'm going to move my million dollars today um, to someone paying me a higher rate, that bank's going to have to find a million dollars and they can't go to a mortgage customer and say like, hey, like we, you need to pay us all of the mortgage you owe us right now because we've got to pay someone a million dollars. We're short. Yeah, right. Yeah. So these liquidity facilities are really, really important to just continuing operations. And so Silvergate was just such an interesting case study on what does it mean to provide banking services to a space that is having like a collapsing. Um, I don't know if that's like, if that's too dramatic of a tone. Imploding, imploding. No, I mean, it's not dramatic at all. Yeah, totally. Right. And that like, it's kind of incredible to think that 
All of these crypto companies are basically locked up. They're in bankruptcy. People can't withdraw their money. But Silvergate was able to cash out. Like Silvergate was able to meet their business obligations to their own companies. And I think that's really fascinating. So we also saw Bank Prov. Bank Prov actually did um, crypto assets. They lent to servers for mining. Yes, mining, right? Yeah, fancy computers, right? That they bought to to finance, yeah. They made some loans and then it's almost like they timed it at the peak and then took these losses. But, and that's one thing to take a loss. Like it's, you know, in banking, you, you make these loans, you take a loss. But in writing down the loss, we also saw that the um, CEO departed and that, you know, what we always, and not arguably for uh, on the banking side, the more important thing is that the board reevaluated the decision making that went into this business line that led to these losses and determined that there was a material weakness. That is a very serious disclosure that the bank has made. Um, they've made it probably in consultation with an auditor, accounting firm, or a regulator to disclose that there are fundamental problems in the bank's policies, procedures, or governance that led to the bank like getting into this business line that I think they were only in for like six quarters, if that, like completely eroded quarters and quarters of losses. It is so hard for some of these banks to make $15 million a quarter and to, or $15 million and to have all of that wiped out in one quarter. So I think that some of these banks are really going to have to determine that if they want to service these like riskier areas, crypto, cannabis banking, what are the policies, procedures, and governance that they have that they can apply to it to provide proper oversight so that, you know, when these businesses run into problems, they don't also then are like, oh, shoot, like, we just don't even have the internal policies to govern that should have led us to evaluate these risks this way in the first place. So those are the two banks I've been thinking about is, you know, being prob and how they're going to navigate this post crypto loss. And then also how Silvergate was able to and how Silvergate will continue to think about liquidity as they service this space because they're not they're not backing out of crypto, but they are certainly they've written. <laughs> Having written high, they have, they've written the wave down, you know? Totally. Well, and I, I think you make a really good point, right? I mean, it does, it almost reminds me of what you were saying before about the Black Swan event with COVID and how I've sort of tested these new sort of models that we were coming up with. And, you know, crypto is kind of like a new Black Swan industry that just sort of appeared and it was like meteoric at its high. And then it's the meteor has crashed into the planet. And now we're dealing with all of these problems. But it's like, it was a really hard thing, I think, to model for if you're a bank looking at crypto, right? Like you're seeing it, you're seeing lots of customers going, hey, we have money, we wanna do things with you, we wanna get a loan for this thing. Bitcoin's gone up like this, like that's why it's safe to help us buy these mining rigs so that we can mine Bitcoin, like whatever the the business case was. And I, to your point, I can't totally fault some of these banks for going, yeah, there's money to be made here. I mean, a lot of banks did make a lot of money here. And I think it is really important to separate banking as a sort of function within society versus the decision making of individual businesses that work in banking, right? Like, I think that crypto proved to be very much of a sort of black swan, like you don't understand this industry nearly as well as you think you do bad business decision for a lot of individual banks. But to your point, and I think Silvergate's a great example of this, I was actually very impressed that they handled their bank run as well as they did, right? I mean, to your point, they had modeled out these scenarios. They had, you know, uh, enough liquidity to handle it. They've practiced. You have to test the liquidity facilities. Like you can't. Right. So I wrote about, you know, deposit runoff and deposit costs. And you see this across banks in the industry, but you can't just go to the FHLB and say like, hey, would you mind giving us like $8 billion? Like, you know, these (laughs) are... You should set up, you know, for all banks, <laughs> you should set up your liquidity facilities well in advance of ever needing those facilities. You should test them. You should figure out if you're going to do a CD strategy, where would you go? How much do you have to price? Like how much money do you need to raise? Do you have the modeling capabilities in your bank to figure out how much deposit outflows you can handle in one day before you encounter a liquidity crisis? And so again, like this is a big problem that a lot of companies face is operating funds. But yeah, I just... What I thought was so interesting about Silvergate is that when you collect a lot of deposits mm-hmm. from an industry, so like the banking as a service banks probably are like this too. What if all your deposits left? <laughs> like, right. What would you do? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you know, big banks or banks have to think about this too. What if our biggest three biggest customers left on the same day? You know, what if like our biggest customer to loans, like, declare bankruptcy? How are we going to get the money back? And these are all these questions that I have to ask, but you know, banks fail because they run out of liquidity. They don't fail necessarily because they have bad loans. 
Right. No, I mean, that's right. And I think just to put a capping point on that, if people listening to this think, wow, this sounds nothing like the way that most fintech companies and certainly all crypto companies operate, you're right, right? I mean, like I reading all of the uh, details that have come out about FTX and the way they were sort of managing their balance sheet, which is like balance sheet in quotations, because it really wasn't a balance sheet in any way that you'd understand it. Um, it was really built around. <laughs> yeah, it's not a bank balance sheet. <laughs> no, it's yeah, I mean, it's like it's far away from being a bank balance sheet as possible to be. But it was really interesting because their whole thing was like, well, as long as these 25 things all go right in this exact sequence, we'll have enough money to meet all of our requirements. That was essentially like the philosophy. As long as the currency never loses its value, we're good. Right. And no one ever sells any of these tokens that we made up and these other businesses work out just fine. And like, as long as all of those things are true, we'll just barely scrape over and be able to pay out all of the deposits unless everyone asks at the same time. And to your point, like banks are exactly the opposite, right? Right? They model out what if everything goes wrong in exactly the wrong sequence, right? And so like banking, when it works, and to your point, there are problem banks that don't do this as well. And we've seen that as well. But when banking works and, and when banking regulation sort of coaxes banks to act this way, they're modeling it out almost the exact scenario. And I think their response to crypto is a good example of that. Banks are lucky because they have all these different types of liquidity windows to draw on. But That's right. it's certainly, yeah, you got to do the work. Like you got to. You got to imagine that worst case scenario. And I think with the bank earnings that you looked at, certainly we see banks saying we are thinking about the worst case scenario. We're actually thinking about how bad it could be and versus what we actually think it could be. Right. Exactly. That was the overriding theme. Exactly. So um, that's a great place to jump from that to let's do one more news item. Um, Kia, I'll let you pick. Okay. Well, Alex, have you ever tried to buy? Okay, do you know what like treasury rates are right now? Do you know what the federal funds rate is? The, they're good, right? Yeah, it's um, what is it? Four, four and a half? It's like four percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's good. I, I'd like that return. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So have you? So you can probably buy like a CD. You probably open a yep. brokerage account. Yep. Um, have you ever tried to buy a treasury bill? Like you, Alex Johnson? No. Want to go to like hit up Janet Yellen? Be like Janet, hook me up. I've got a thousand dollars. I want to give it to you for like a year. And I want that 4%. Yes. No, I have not done that. No, no, no. I haven't. Mm. Okay. I, I I sense that you, you've you tried though, maybe? I tried. I, okay. Okay. I tried for like one evening I posted on Twitter that <laughs> two of my friends who are economists were getting married and I thought it'd be really funny as a wedding gift to buy them a treasury bond. You know how like people give like savings bonds to babies? I was like, oh, I'll give my like economist friends um, a treasury bond. Absolutely. And Julie Hill, who's a law professor at the University of Alabama, actually uh, disabused me of this idea. And she told me (laughs) that at the time she said, you can buy treasury bonds on Treasury Direct only for other people who have a Treasury Direct account. She called Treasury Direct an abomination, that it's hard to use and it's hard to change anything like your address or your bank account. Um, She said, think about the worst DMV experience ever. This is why most people buy from brokerages or banks, and it is difficult to do as a gift. And so I did Mm -hmm. not give my friends a treasury bond. (laughs) But it's been so interesting to think about people wanting to get treasury bonds because treasury bonds, super safe, arguably like as safe or safer than banks, especially if you are wealthy and you have more than $250,000. That's not going to be insured in a bank account or if you're a business mm-hmm. and rates are undeniable. So maybe you're getting like 2% or two basis points at your bank and you're like, screw this. I can just give my money to the U.S. government. And they've got bonds that are like four weeks, like eight weeks. Like you don't even have to lock up that money for 20 years. Yeah. But the problem is it's hard to buy these bonds. Yeah. They're inaccessible, right? Right. And so... But one of the most interesting for me banks or fintechs that owns a bank is Jico. I have spoken to Jico back when I wrote my story about um, fintechs buying bank charters. Jico is a broker dealer. They acquired a bank and they do not lend from this bank, I think, which I think is so interesting to think about what do banks do. Yeah, yeah. Not, not lending in this particular case, I guess. Yeah. But what they do is they take customer deposits and they just put it in treasuries mm. and they have built essentially an interface that allows customers, mostly like businesses, but they actually do have like a consumer account mm-hmm. where you get a debit card and you can spend your money, your deposits, which are now treasury dollars, treasury deposits. And then they'll just like sell the bonds and then they'll like so your transactions go through 
as like a normal quote unquote bank, but then they also are able to give you the yield from the treasury. And this is like very intriguing because treasury yields are high right now. Right. Um, like 4%. Yeah. And they just announced a partnership with public, which is a, an investing platform. Public will offer their members accounts through Jico. So I thought that this is interesting and off, like the most obvious thing in the world. Do you have like any thoughts? Are you going to become like a treasury billionaire now? I think I have to, right? I mean, I so the background for me is that uh, my current bank, who I will not name because it would be mean, but I also am mad at them. Say it, you coward. Come on. <laughs> no, I won't. I won't. I won't say it. Um, but I'm an online bank person. Yeah, yeah. So this is a large online predominantly bank, and um, they were not paying me a high interest rate on my uh, savings account because they're trying to hold their deposit betas down, and they bet that I would not be the kind of person who would move it. That angered me as a bank fintech nerd, and so so I went out shopping for different options. I think the best I was able to find was like three, 3.25, somewhere in that range, which is mm-hmm. certainly better than I was getting. It's not four or four and a half. It's not like treasury level. And so when I saw this announcement from public, I was really intrigued, right? And so like kind of double clicking into it, it does seem basically like built on that GECO infrastructure. And the experience from the consumer's perspective is you put your money in, it somewhat functions as a CD in that you have to keep your money in for the term of the treasury bond in order to get the yield, which is fair, right? Because um, that's how treasury bonds work. But it also functions a little bit in more of a savings account manner in that if I do need that money, it's not locked up in the CD. I can take it back out without losing the money. I just don't get that same yield that I was going to get, right? So there's like, there's some optionality built into it. Yeah, your money is matured. Yeah, it hasn't matured, but it is accessible and I don't have to pay like a penalty on it. So I thought that was, I always think about the deposit spaces like this rainbow of different colors, right? Of like all these different product options and like which one works for different use cases and which ones are sort of badly designed and like how consumers sort of shift between all of them. And I sort of view this as like enabled by Jico, like a new color in the rainbow, right? Might not be right for everybody, but like it's accessible as like another way to earn yield, but have your deposits be sort of still available to you. And I don't know, it it seems like maybe something that should exist as kind of a product category generally like why have treasury bonds been so inaccessible well treasury bonds i mean like who sells treasury bonds versus who sells the deposit right right (laughs) right there you go that's the answer so i think one reason why it's funny because i'm like thinking about like bonds being underappreciated from retail consumers and of course like i don't own bonds like i'm in my 30s i don't need like a guaranteed rate of returns i don't sit around being like, oh, what's the like triple A rated bonds? And like, <laughs> um, I don't know if anyone's sitting, listening to the debt ceiling and is worried about the like rating of the US like as a creditor paying back your savings. Like, no, like the treasury bonds are sold from the US to other countries or to banks or to businesses that need them as like weird savings accounts. And so that is why this GECO is probably alone in offering a product like this. You know, GECO owns a bank that bank is operated separately. And so that bank is funded probably through its own deposits and its own securities portfolio. You know, I don't know if most brokerages have incentives to make it easy for you to buy 4% treasury bonds because then you're not gonna put the money in their money market account. And then you might not buy their other products like the treasury bill, especially when it's 4% competes directly with bank CDs. Oh, totally. Like there, I mean, we don't have time to get into this, but there used to be a rule that like, there was like a cap on CD prices. If you were like a bank that was less than low capitalism, this whole thing. And the problem with this rule was that they like took a survey of bank CDs. And so if you had a bunch of branches, if you were a bank, like a national bank with a bunch of branches and you only paid 10 basis point on a CD, like, these smaller banks that need to compete for deposits were like, why would a business in my town ever give me a CD or like buy a CD for me if they can just go get a treasury right. from their treasury manager at these higher rates? And so now the you know banks are allowed to compete a lot closer on close to CD rates. But yeah, CDs and treasury bills, they actively compete as financial products like for consumer money. But now I can buy my friend this CD. Like I can just maybe go to GECO and ask them to send like, 
a treasury bill to my friends. But it's just not, it's not designed to be a retail product is my guess. Yeah, I think that's true, right? And so like the fintechification of treasury bills as a new mechanism for earning yield. Like it's it's interesting because, and I, I think this is going to be a topic that we touch on later in, in a different segment, but um, it is a, a really interesting contrast with crypto because, yeah. you know, we just got done with all of these sort of high yield accounts that sort of look like checking or savings accounts. They're sort of marketed like checking or savings accounts. But the yield is generated in ways that are like wildly irresponsible. There's no consumer protections at all. And there's no sort of bank on the back end going, oh, yeah, you know, we're making sure that we have enough sort of liquidity so that if you want to cash this out early, we can cash you out and then we can get a return on this treasury bill later. Like there is no sort of like mechanisms. It's all just built on a house of cards. Whereas, you know, this is very similar, I think, to the crypto stuff in that it's putting a new user interface and layer on top of existing infrastructure and channeling yield to people who want it, who maybe weren't able to get it easily before. But the way it's being done is totally different, right? Like, as you said, T-bills are incredibly safe. They're as safe or safer than anything that most of us get our, our money into today. And it's being filtered through this regulated bank that's managing that liquidity risk and doing all of those things as well. And so I do think that it is interesting in that like the consumer benefit and the problem that's being solved is roughly similar to a lot of things that we've seen in fintech and crypto. But this is about the sort of safest, most sort of complex on the back end. But like as long as someone deals with that, that's fine. Like this is like the best version of that relative to the other alternatives I've seen. Yeah, it's there is probably no incentive to make this like lower than a million dollars these like right. <laughs> these like small dollar accounts these small dollar transactions mm-hmm. like the small dollar like buying and selling of treasury sounds like some of the most annoying <laughs> work you could devote yourself to in this world but there's definitely now a lot of interest i think in yield and yeah it is so interesting to contrast this with crypto because you know a lot of people put their money retail money in crypto products to get yield And really, they could have just been buying some of the safest investments in the world um, through Deco. (laughs) Right, exactly. So maybe moving forward. Or through public now, I guess. Uh, Yeah, through public, exactly. Um, All right, so let's jump to our next segment, which, as promised, is going to be Kia and I sort of indulging our um, nerd curiosity in sort of weird little corners of bank history. So we're calling this segment, Wait, But Why? And the goal is to sort of find something sort of interesting or maybe incongruous in the banking space that we've all just sort of maybe gotten used to, or maybe we've heard this acronym before. We think we know what this is, but like, actually, we don't really know, or we don't know why it works exactly the way it is. And we we don't know why, or why is it this way? Yeah, we want to pull the why apart a little bit and start to try to tease that out a bit. So um, Kia, I'm going to start next time. I'll let you ask this question, but I want to do this first one. You actually tweeted about this. So it gave me the idea to ask you this question. Why are there so many banks in the US with the same names? Well, Alex, if you were going to come up with 7,000 different companies that all provide financial services through the regulated financial services space, like what words would you do you think you'd come up with? I think like first a thousand, probably pretty unique. Yep. Next one thousand. Yep. They're getting like we're getting some like similar phrasing. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I know we have forty eight hundred banks in the United States today. We used to have seven thousand banks back before the nineteen ninety four interstate banking reforms. What do you know about interstate banking? Let's just assume I know I know basically nothing. My only thing I would sort of guess would be that by interstate banking we mean banking that banks that can work across state lines. Is that somewhere close? Yeah. So I was not alive for or paying attention very much for the interstate <laughs> banking changes. So You weren't nineteen ninety four, you weren't a bank reporter in 19- Yeah, like in ninety four. Yeah, okay. Okay. All right, fair. So um what I was told about interstate banking was that it used to be a lot harder to operate banks geographically. And that banking was so like extremely localized and that there were either state laws or federal laws that you made it so that you could not operate a bank. A bank in Oklahoma could not operate in Texas. They wanted Texas banks to operate in Texas and Oklahoma banks to operate in Oklahoma and to service those businesses. And there were some states like Illinois famously made it so hard to operate banks in different cities 
that it was easier for a holding company to open up a subsidiary bank than to open up a new branch. So this like even extended down to branching, not just operating across state lines. And so in the 80s, there's deregulation. That's the name of the game in the 80s. And so you have some banks changing their laws so that Oklahoma banks can buy Texas banks only if Texas banks can buy Oklahoma banks. And then you have some states like change their laws so that any bank headquartered in that state can buy a bank in another state where, but without reciprocation. And then in 1994, there is federal legislation that basically says interstate banking is allowed. And if you're a bank, that ha- I think there were 36 states that prohibit had prohibitions on bank geographic expansion. And those rules are negated. So in 1994, banks can expand geographically. But by this point, we have 7,000 banks. And many of them have the same name because it used to not matter at all what your name was. So I could be like First Security Bank in Oklahoma. And there could be a First Security Bank in uh, Illinois. And never the two shall meet. And so it was fine. No customer would ever get confused. The checks would never cross. You'd never run into their customer. Their customer, the Illinois customer, would never walk off the street into your branch because it was so banking was so geographic. And then the other thing about banking is like names mean something. And banking, these are these names are trust. They're like patriotic. They are responsible. You want yeah, to show like a lot of affinity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't know like what the actual rule is with when you apply to the regulator and are like, hey, I want to call my bank first or Bank of America. I'm sure the regulator is like, you can't call your bank Bank of America. (laughs) Um, I do know that like if you have a holding company, your holding company name has to be unique. And so that kind of helps with a lot of confusion because, Mm -hmm. you know, you might just be talking about the holding company and who who kind of like cares about the the bank unit name if they're different. But this comes up now. (laughs) So that's the 80s. That's the 90s. This comes up now because of the internet. And the internet has made this a way more visible problem than like your little niche nerds that are like talking about these different banks. Um, Because now it is possible for First Security Bank of Illinois' customers to accidentally go to First Security Bank of Oklahoma's customers or to their website and be like, I can't log into my bank. And especially with like, if if you didn't get on the internet really quickly, and so you now have like a really goofy URL or you have to like to do the dot bank domain. This is becoming like a bigger problem or like it's just a problem. And the reason why I was specifically thinking about it is that, again, Julie Hill was talking about how the Federal Reserve is going to publish the name of institutions that have master accounts at the Federal Reserve. But they were just going to like, I think, put out the name of the bank. And she oh. was like, that's not good enough <laughs> because there is a lot of similar bank names in the industry. And so, so SRM's Paul Davis did came up with a list of names that are very common in banking today. So his list is community, first national, people or peoples, the word security, and the word home. Interesting. If I was going to add to that list, I would probably add look up the phrase first state or the word state. And then I would also look up the word FNM or farmers and merchants. That's another pretty common bank name. And then the way we <laughs> the way we handle this at Bank Director is that our style is that if possible, you should always like look at the holding company's name. Oh, okay. We always say where the holding company is headquartered or where their bank head- is headquartered. Mm-hmm. And we also always say what the asset size is because those are some of the ways that you can check if one if two banks have the same name. Like, what are the differences between them? Um, that's how we've had to address it at Bank Director. And I think a lot of um, financial media that focuses on community banking specifically has run into this problem and has actual style guide to manage it. This is amazing. I, I One quick story on this, and then we'll, we'll jump to our last segment. But I... Um... I remember with my community bank, I bank with kind of a local bank uh, here in town, which is um, very not fintech of me, but I like it and it gives me sort of a view into that world. So, Oh, that's nice. No, it is really nice. Yeah, it's fun. And um, they have online banking, but it's not terribly sophisticated. And um, I remember going one time to log in and uh, it said my account was locked. And I was like, well, that's really weird. You know, why is my account locked? And so I, I call them and they're like, oh yeah, we'll unlock your account. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. And then like a week later, account was locked again. 
And I was like, okay, this is really like weird. And I, I called him and I was like, so like, why, like, why is this happening? Great that you've unlocked it. Thank you. But like, why is this happening? Can we stop this from happening? And they're like, you know, I don't know. We'll, we'll look into it. And they got back to me. And what they found out was they actually had a different consumer, different customer who wasn't a customer of their bank, but was a customer of another similarly named bank in a totally different part of the country who was accidentally logging into my account because he had my same name and used, I guess, the same username that I had picked. And he did not recognize his bank's website because even the branding and the name and the logo were all similar enough that they were like, he was getting it confused. So he was logging into my account or trying to with my username on my bank's website with wrong oh password because obviously he doesn't know my password. Doing it so many times, he's locking my account. And so he had called their call center too to find out what was going on. And they, they, after some investigation, they managed to link up these two customer complaints. And they explained to me that Alex Johnson, living in, I can't remember where he's from, Ohio or somewhere, had been trying to log into his community bank using my thing. You have a whole doppelganger who- I do. Uses a community bank with a similar name. Yes. That has, and the similar branding. This is incredible. You must meet your twin. I want to so bad. Did this man ever get access to his money? What like? I think he did. I mean, that, that once they figured out what it was, I think they were like, "Sir, this is <laughs> this is not your bank. This is a similarly named bank in a totally different place." And I think they did sort it out. But I think I actually might because I was writing my newsletter at the time. I think I actually asked if they could give me his contact information. They're like, Absolutely "No, not. no, 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 no." no. <laughs> uh, but I was like, "But I, it's not. It's not weird. It's not weird. I just want to talk to him." And they were like, "No, we can't do that." So um, anyway, I have had a personal run up against this particular problem in the industry. Yeah, you can thank the 1994 interstate banking reform for this problem, for why you're encountering this problem today. That is amazing. Okay, so that was our first um, wait, but why uh, segment. We'll do more of those in the future. Um, Kia, should we end with our possibly unanswerable question? Yes, let's. I mean, I think everyone loves a podcast that just leaves you hanging with no (laughs) satisfying resolution. And I'm happy to give that. Excellent. Okay, so um, we talked a little bit about this earlier, mm-hmm. and I think we set up some interesting comparing and contrasting, but what should be done from a regulatory perspective about crypto? From where we are today, what we've seen today, should the industry go towards more regulation? Should there be more rulemaking? Should Congress get involved, which is how laws and rules get made in the United States? Or should we do less? Should we let the DeFi's be, you know, kind of deregulated, unregulated, and allow this, like, whatever the fire is, to just keep burning? To burn to the ground, I think, is a uh, an editorial phrased it right. Like, just let crypto burn to the ground. Yeah. So, what do you, I guess, like, having said that, and being in this like highly regulated bank space, what are your initial thoughts before I give mine? So I think, I mean, I'll just tee up, I think, your sort of answer to this question, which I think is really interesting. You're looking at my notes. I'm going to cheat and look at your notes. Um, Because I initially was wondering about this too, right? Like, should we just let crypto continually burn to the ground? Maybe that's okay. There's the byline that we were referencing, um, I forget who wrote it, was really, I think, pretty persuasive about like, crypto's fine, because as long as banking doesn't touch it, then there's no systemic risk, and we're we're totally fine. But I think it touches on a broader question, uh, which credit Kia to you for sort of broadening our framing here, which is like, what is the purpose of regulation? as it relates specifically like to financial services, like what are we trying to accomplish? And did the regulatory sort of hands-off approach that we had with crypto and DeFi this time around, did that accomplish our goals? Are we happy? Are we sad? Like, what do you think about that? So I was talking to you before we were began recording that we live in a world where banks and casinos are both allowed to exist and people can walk into the doors of each of these. And that we have decided that it's not acceptable for people to lose their money when it is held at the bank, when it is the direct bank deposit, as long as it's up to you know, $250,000, whatever. And we take a lot of regulation, a lot of time, money, effort goes into that promise that that depositors shouldn't lose their money. And banks pay a lot of in your regulatory examinations to be able to say that. And that's mm-hmm. not what casinos promise. And that's not what casinos advertise. Casinos advertise Fun. that you could win a lot of money and you could probably lose all your money. And I have been thinking about how interesting it is, you know, with crypto, 
you know, what is the harm mitigation? What is the harm prevention we're trying to embody? Um, what are the outcomes we're trying to avoid? You know, in banking, we there's like two types of regulation. There's safety and soundness, and there's consumer protection. So that the bank should be doing things that are prudent and don't lose that money. And that also banks, given their role in society, should also have to adhere to consumer protections. And the idea, I think, like we're understanding in crypto is that there are no safety and soundness regulations. And I think that that's probably good. Um, I think I think the Silvergate deposit run is about as close as we want to see to crypto um, taking its money in and out of the banking space. Right. Um, Impacting safety and soundness, essentially. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then... The other thing, too, is do we think that the consumer protections that currently exist are adequate for um, consumers or do we need like more like maybe truth in advertising, um, need more disclosures? And then I also the other thing, too, is like I actually think there's a, ton, a lot of existing regulation. It's just the question is, do we think the regulation uh, around crypto as security or how the deposit, you know, the FDIC went after some of these crypto firms for false advertising of deposit insurance and misrepresentations. Do we think that's happening fast enough? And do we think the people who are falling prey to the false advertising are getting this message fast enough and or would even receive this message and know what it means? Like, do you have any thoughts about those questions? Yeah, I mean, those are great questions. I mean, I think that on the sort of safety and soundness point, I mean, I totally agree, right? I think that... Um, the safety and soundness thing is really almost a unique bank regulatory concern that doesn't really apply to other sort of banking adjacent things from my perspective, which is that like banks play a sort of integral role in society and just the functioning of society in our economy. So we can't have them all crash at once because if that happens, very, very bad externalities that are created for everyone in the world. So the safety and soundness thing makes complete sense to me. And I think firewalling that off from everything else is generally a pretty good idea. And so from that point, the whole let crypto burn to the ground thing, I get where that's coming from. On the consumer protection front, though, I do find that much trickier and kind of more challenging to deal with, right? Because, you know, like I listen to obviously a bunch of podcasts and um, weirdly enough, a lot of the the sports podcasts I listen to now have advertisements for online gambling, right? For sports betting. But I'm fascinated when I listen to those ads because at the end, usually it's not the podcast host who's reading the ad. It's like a pre-recorded message that comes on that's like triple the speed that goes really fast, like on uh, pharmaceutical commercials where they list all the side effects really fast. You can't even hear what they're saying. That's how you know it's the good stuff. Like, definitely don't need to listen to anything that's being said here. Exactly. It's like, this will destroy you, but it also might help you. Um, It's the same thing with these online gambling ones, where they basically are required by all the states that they operate in to list out places that consumers can go if they need help with a gambling problem, basically. It's like, here's a a 1-800 number you can call to get help with your gambling addiction. And they're required to say that. Now, I personally think that probably the gaming and gambling industry is a little too loosely regulated, and there probably is more consumer harm than there should be. But I think the interesting thing, and this is something else we talked about before we started recording, I'm going to steal your point here because it was a really good one, is when crypto, as an example, dresses up gambling to look like banking, I feel like there should be different consumer protections that apply because it's not just gambling anymore. Like when I gamble, when I bet on a sports game, I know that uh, it's very likely that I'm going to lose my bet, at least the way that I make bets in sports. Um, And if it's something different, though, if it's like an app saying we can generate a, you know, 10 percent yield for you on your deposits and they use all of those words. Is it likely that I'm going to understand that that's gambling that I'm doing? Or am I going to key in on words that they use like deposits and APY and interest rates and sort of assume maybe because we've been so successful with insured deposits with the FDIC for so many decades that I'm going to assume that if it's a deposit, well, then it has to be insured and it has to be safe. And I'm going to just impute these things about those words that make me think I'm not gambling, even though probably the rational part of my brain is going, Wow, 10%. That seems like a lot. Like, how can they do that? Like, yeah, that seems too good to be true. Right. It seems too good to be true. But like they say it's safe and they use these words and those words generally mean safe things. Like I kind of can't kill consumers totally 
for falling for that, especially when like a lot of these people we're talking about, they don't have a lot of money. They are looking for ways to build wealth. Like this is kind of a predatory practice and it's dressed up in the clothes of banking, even though it's being sort of firewalled off of banking from a safety and soundness perspective. What do you think about that? It's interesting because I don't think the word deposit is a marketing word. Um, It's like a vocab word for me, Um, but it means a very specific thing. And it's almost like I'm allowed to lose money in my like stock portfolio, right? Like I can make. Sure. And so what is the terminology and the marketing that's being applied to these accounts that makes it look more like a bank account and less like a stock, uh, you know, stock portfolio, right? Um, right. stock market. And the other thing too is like my impression of the gamut of many of these crypto companies is like they just kind of ignore the law and then they wait for the law to catch up. And so I don't know what the utility of making all these laws about truth and advertising would be if um, people just ignore them. And then it goes back to kind of the consumer of, should you just be allowed to lose all your money? Is this the only way people learn en masse if some people get burned? Specifically, I think like um, the misrepresentations of deposit insurance are so interesting to me because deposit insurance is one of like, it's so taken for granted. Um, and it is also why most people don't make a lot of money on their deposits is because, well, you're not going to lose it. Well, I mean, I, I, I've said before that like the number one job for an average consumer for their checking account is the money that's in there today needs to be there tomorrow. Like that's yeah. by far the most important job. Like yield is great, but like if it's not there tomorrow, that's a problem. That's like checking account. That's the core job. Right. And so, you know, there's like these problems I think crypto, the burn down, the ancillary add-on effects, the way consumers have been hurt. And like the fact that I need, like, where are you even finding these products? Are you like going to nerd wallet and looking like, oh, Gemini earn 8%. Like I where, I feel like I'm on the internet every single day and I don't know if I've ever seen a Gemini earn ad in my life. Um, so <laughs> if you're like on Reddit and looking at Wall Street bets and they're talking about this like hot new quote unquote deposit product, and it pays 8%. There's nothing more to see here. You do not have to ask any questions about how they're making money. You know, I can't stop you. Um, and, <laughs> I, and I, do, but I do kind of feel, I do kind of feel bad in a way that's like, well, I think the existing gaps have. No, it's, it's really true. Well, and, and I think the, the other thing to your point about like regulation and the speed of it. Yeah. 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 I mean, like, that's just, it's, it's not keeping up. It feels like. Right. And losing access to all of your money, like that really sucks. Like, having these bankrupts, having your money tied up in bankruptcies. And I just wonder kind of if we like, you know, the financial crisis, the bailouts were very controversial, the um, failed banks very, you know, it kind of sucked. But you know, I think I was making fun of you once that when your bank failed, I had several friends whose banks failed, and they did not even notice like that is how um, amazing the FDIC was at closing hundreds of banks with almost no service disruptions, no losses on uninsured deposits. And so in the financial crisis, consumers were spared a lot of that harm. Now, did they lose houses? Was there job losses? Yes. Was there, you know, was your life complicated when Bear Stearns went under or Lehman, sorry, when Lehman Brothers went under? No. Like, we were really spared a lot of that because our regulated financial space includes like, Regulators who really make sure we don't notice when like that a whole bank failing does not mean we take losses as depositors. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I I mean, going back to your point about um, regulation sort of keeping up with the pace of change and all of this stuff, I thought it was really interesting that you know, of all of the sort of crypto companies, Coinbase is probably the one that's acted the most sort of responsible and like like a bank and trying to engage with regulators. And they like to like jostle with the SEC and they're mad at them about all these things. And they're learning what a security is. And, right. Yeah. Like, yeah, sort of having these like very essential debates that I think we settled like decades ago. But it was interesting because by engaging with regulators and being mad about how regulators weren't working with them, but still trying to do it, they actually were stopped from offering one of these earn products that was generating yield, right? They didn't do what Gemini did because the SEC said, yeah, no, thanks for asking, but no, you can't do that. And like, don't do that. Uh, If you do, we'll stop you. And they're like the one person who would like answer the SEC's phone calls. Well, it turns out that like the SEC actually saved Coinbase on that one, right? Because Coinbase (laughs) would be in the 
same place that like um, you know FTX and Gemini and all of these other companies are that you know BlockFi like they all were doing roughly the same thing. Yeah. And you know Coinbase, I don't think they took it this way. I, they probably wouldn't admit it now that it was a good thing, but like the SEC saved them on that one, right? And so there is a role for banking type regulation in also steering you away from like bad business ideas. Yeah, I mean, it's when in this wait, but why we'll often talk about the rules exist because something bad happened and whether or not we think that the rules will address the future bad thing. It is really interesting because it, it, I mean, they probably did. It was very painful to probably watch them or have them lose out on all these opportunities, all this fee income, all this yield that they could have gotten from lending it out. Well, I mean, look, you know, like it looks amazing now. And so, you know, I don't know what the lesson for Coinbase is, if Coinbase is going to try to ever come out with a, pro- a yield product like that, that accepts deposits and loans them out, or if they have watched an- enough of their competitors and the interconnectedness of their competitors and realized like they, you know, they rose together and they fell together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And luckily they were sort of spared that. So no, I, I think that's super interesting. Um, We'll leave this one there. I think we might end up picking this topic or a different one up in future unanswerable questions because regulation sits in the middle of a bunch of this stuff. But um, Kia, thank you so much for this inaugural Bank Nerd Corner. I'm so looking forward to doing this again with you and uh, really appreciate your time today. Am I seeing you next week at Acquire v. Acquire? That's true as well. Yes, we'll get to spend some time together in person. And um, uh, for those of you who don't read Kia's stuff, make sure that you start doing it. It's awesome. Uh, everything that she does over at Bank Director is great and essential reading. Well, thank you. And, um, you know, I want to promote my colleagues' works as well. Our Q1 issue just came out, and I am looking forward to doing more work being at the intersection of banking and fintech. So awesome. Well, that's what we do here for next month. Okay, awesome. Well, thanks so much, Kia. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fintech Takes. Stay up to date with emerging companies and the latest fintech trends by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love Fintech Takes, please tell a friend.